0: There's a reason why this prison is the worst hell on earth. Hope. Every man who was rotted here over the centuries has looked up to the light and imagined climbing to freedom. So easy. So simple. And like shipwrecked men turning to sea water from uncontrollable thirst. Many have died trying. I learned here that there can be no true despair without hope. So, as I terrorize Gotham, I will feed its people hope to poison their souls. I will let them believe that they can survive so that you can watch them clambering over each other to stay in the sun. You could watch me torture an entire city. And then when you truly understood the depth of your failure, we will fulfill the destiny. We will destroy Gotham. And then, when it is done, and Gotham is... ashes, Then you have my permission to die.
1: Hey, what's up everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. Here we go, Dave. We're here. Here
2: (laughs) Here we go. Great to see you, Dave. You're looking good. You've had a hell of a week. Hell of a week to get here you've had a journey just to get to the, the podcasting studio and I salute you for it. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if you could tell us how you're doing today and maybe if you'd give us a little bit of
1: narrative of how your week went. Sure. You know, it, you know, the famed Winston Churchill quote, if you're going through hell, keep going.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: keep going, uh, Dave. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's all the media I've consumed. Are you ready? I'm. I'm I ready. I saw the entire first season of Succession. Hmm. I saw every Bourne movie, Ultimatum, Supremacy, Identity, the other one. Um, I saw Goodwill Hunting. Got a little bit of a Matt Damon kick. Wow. I saw Ben Affleck in The Town. Oh, good. Okay and um oh some good rom-coms saw devil wears prada really like that one wedding crashers did not like that one at all um uh 27 dresses awful Mm. um and i guess the reason i'm saying all this is because i got covid <clears throat> I came down with a little of the Omicron. Never heard of it. Can you tell us what that is and what it does? Yeah, it's it's kind of like, um, nah, it, you know, it's funny looking back when we were like two years ago starting this podcast and the world was on fire <clears throat> and it was a scary time to be like, coming down with anything. But I feel like there's a lot, a big piece of me that feels like Omicron's a real blessing, you know? Um, My symptoms were super mild. I didn't have hardly anything besides a cold. I was a little surprised when I tested positive. I will say that I wasn't super surprised because in the end, um, I had a lot of kids in my school came down with COVID. So it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But um, yeah, it was like a lot of people have been saying anecdotally, it's a lot more in the throat than the lungs and that's kind of how it felt to me. And I think just like I've been feeling so much gratitude for the vaccine and the booster because I feel like that really kept all the things much more mild. Um, yeah, it was the hardest part of it all was like the CDC changing its time frame. And like going back to a five-day like isolation period kind of forced me back into going to school a little bit quicker than I wanted to. Although like my teaching was fine. Like I went back on day six or day seven. Um, I think it was day six is when I went back, which was like the guidelines and what what people or the CDC and my school district says you can go back under that that number of days. And you know, I was symptom free. I didn't have anything besides like a little bit of a lingering, just like fatigue or what have you. But um, I think I probably like if it wasn't COVID, I probably would have gone back. But I still felt like my like, going back and it was just it's just going to spread it. Like I don't know. I was just like kind of trusting that it felt like it was going to be fine, all in all. Um, but I don't really know, and I. I think, you know, just wearing a mask, not eating lunch with anybody and sort of being aware of like what I was spreading to other people felt like, okay, it felt fine to be back in in action. Um, So yeah, I don't know. There's been a lot of memes about like the CDC is like, ah, fuck it, whatever. You're not going to listen to us anyway. So just go back after five days, which but maybe there is a little bit of a truth to that, that like this, because everything's so much milder and because most people um, are vaccinated. And I do, I do think we're, you know, maybe we're not a high enough rate, but you know, most people have gotten at least one, one shot um, that we're looking in to get back to like a little bit of a normalcy with this stuff. So I don't know. That's sort of the ups and downs of it. I will say that I, you know, after getting done teaching and getting home, I was like pretty exhausted and just wanted to go to bed. But that's pretty much every day. So it's not like too dissimilar from teaching fourth grade.
2: One question that was on my mind is like when you came down with it and you were reflecting like, like, You know, it's probably like very obvious that it was like one of your students who gave it to you. But do you, did you think about, oh, it was probably like that one interaction that I had with that one student who did, did, did you like trace that?
1: Yeah, I have an idea of when it happened. Um, But I'm not like positive. Like, it's not like it could have been a lot of different moments. Um, Yeah. And... (laughs) Yeah, it's a frustrating moment. But I think most people don't even have that moment, right? Like where they can be like, oh, yeah, it was that one moment. But, you know, I, I did end up passing it on to Julie because when I got home, I took a rapid test. Like I it came out of nowhere and it just kind of hit me. And I was like, oh, I am not feeling good. Um, So I came home and I took a rapid test and it came back negative. Um, And... I was kind of like, okay, I'm like showing symptoms and everything I've heard anecdotally is that once you start showing symptoms, you should test positive. And, but I think I've also heard that like, because it's all like nasal that like, you're not testing these rapid tests aren't working as well. So I feel bad because I ended up giving it to Julie. Um, We would have been a little bit safer at home otherwise, but it was also like, I don't know. It's tough. It's tough with the person you live with keeping them protected, especially after you end up with a negative test. Um, It kind of feels like at that point, you kind of feel like screwed, like you're going to give it to the person, you know?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, it's like, yeah, it's extremely hard to do that. Absolutely. I feel you on that one. One more question is, okay, You know, we're two years into the pandemic and now you've, um, had it, you've had Omicron and I mean, I think you, you reflected on this a little bit, like what is like having it, does it change your opinion of anything or, you know, you know, do you have any new insight overall about this either? Like, I mean, you mentioned the virus itself. So like, you know, that it like doesn't hit you too bad. And it hits you more in the nasal, but maybe I'm asking here more like any bigger, like social or psychological or political insights after having it. And that's a, that's a tough question.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it is like the idea of like, we probably can't live the way we're living for the, I mean, I guess we could, but it seems a little bit unrealistic to, I don't know. I remember reading like a year in how the US was handling COVID so poorly that we were going to be like living in a COVID winter and like the rest of the world wasn't. And it is interesting looking at some of the numbers like across nations, right? Like how India has way lower spikes than us even though their population is like four times as big as us and they don't have nearly as much money. Um and but I kind of feel like at this point, the whole world, it's not just the U.S. that's going to be living in this quote unquote COVID winter where we're going to go through cycles of COVID and be sort of quarantined from the rest of the world. So, it look it I mean, I don't know. I don't see, like I did hear that like the Spanish flu was quote unquote 10 times as contagious as COVID and 10 times as deadly and like. That got handled way better, but I don't know exactly like what we could do. That's way, way better than what we're currently doing. Cause it seems like, yeah, I don't agree that the U S is doing a great job, but like there's enough countries that are trying enough different things and it doesn't seem like any of them are quite working super well. Like New Zealand has like one strategy where they were really like closed borders and because they were an Island and had like loss of distance that seemed to keep them safe and then like but still once Omicron hit they got spiked and now they're going it's going crazy there you know and like we in the U.S. really are like kind of sucking at vaccinations compared to what we could be doing but like even a country like the United Arab Emirates who has like 99% vaccination rate is still getting crushed too so I don't know Um, I'm not, I don't know exactly what to advocate for. It's just hard. I feel like, especially being a teacher and like, I'm sure any teacher or any person that has to deal with this and reminding people to like, it's like, damn, am I really going to fucking remind you to put your goddamn mask over your nose? I'm just like, so tired of that. I'm exhausted by that. And it's just like... (laughs) Even today at the store in Fort Collins, there was a person without a mask on in a grocery store. And it's like, what are you thinking? Like, where have you been living? I mean, sure, maybe you've been like deep in Greeley, like on a in the middle of Weld County, but like it blows my mind to see moments like that. It's just like, damn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I had a
2: moment, you know, like where I'm trying to put like, multiple N95s over my, my face. And (laughs) and yeah, I saw, I saw a person without a mask on. I didn't, even before I could think it just like I had a visceral reaction. Like what the hell is that? Uh, (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we just don't know how much longer, I mean, it, it could be things being like really really good this summer, you know, but it could be like, absolutely not. You know, there could be waves and waves and waves of variants that keep on coming and talking with my good friend, blaze and blaze. We have this friend who is just brilliant. And like, he's a psychologist, a critical psychologist, but he's like really smart. And in the beginning of the pandemic, he said this, this thing could last eight years. So you know, and he's, he's looking at a lot of stuff. So, and I, I I now think that's entirely possible. And and I also acknowledge it could, could end by the summer, but I think your insight around, like, it's a global thing. So like, it has to be global cooperation and that's just not happening to the degree that it needs to.
1: So yeah, um, I'm with you there, Dave. Hey, you know what I was thinking about recently? Remember early on? early on in the podcast, we were tracking where we were getting downloaded and we were consistently getting downloaded in Montana by one user. Still have never figured out who that person is. Oh my God. And it's still happening. We get every episode gets downloaded almost immediately in Montana. Oh, that person really needs to write us. Yeah. I guess we'll just call it the, uh, the quarterly call out of the Montana listener. (laughs) Who, knows? Yeah, who Yeah, who does? Well, another thing I wanted to ask you about. I was talking about a lot of my media, but you have been consuming a little bit of media, and you were going to tell uh, us about something with MLK, right? Ah, uh, yeah,
2: yeah. It's last Monday was Martin Luther King Day, and I taught one of his speeches in my peace psychology class. And when I was doing research on him, I came across a documentary that came out last year, 2020, and it's called MLK slash FBI. And it's something that I think people who know a little bit about MLK already know that the FBI was surveilling him and tracking him. Um, but the movie's just super interesting about how that happened. And I like it originally happened because Martin Luther King was comrades or friends with a Jewish intellectual named I think Stanley Levison. And Levison was a former communist. So it was like, way before they thought King was anything, they were more interested in Levison. Um, But it, it progressed to King and like Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover was really concerned with a so called Black Messiah emerging. And so, you know, he was probably surveilling all, all the like leaders in the black community, King and Malcolm X, we know Fred Hampton. Um, and the surveillance was so intense. They were also, so there's two things that are interesting that come out of this for me. One is they found out that Martin Luther King was having extramarital affairs. And, um, so instead of like, they changed their tactic then to like try to blackmail him and to get him to stop based upon that and saying like, they'll like release that. Um, and eventually they re- they like released audio tapes to his wife and, um, you know, tried to stop him that, that way. So I think there's like interesting questions that come up around that, like a great leader like Martin Luther King, like had multiple extramarital affairs. So like, what, how should we like, rethink about King? Um, or, or should we at all? Or does that change our opinion of King? Um, and the other thing is, then the FBI, was really trying to kill him. They were like, they wrote a letter to him saying like from a fan or like, so a follower who said like, now that I know this stuff, I think you should kill yourself. And the FBI themselves said like, we will release this to the, the press. So you should kill yourself. That's so intense. That's so intense that they would do that and put that pressure on him. it's not a surprise, but just the, the pressure that King must've been feeling. Um, And the last bit of it is they were so on him, you know, they're surveilling him so tightly that it seems impossible that they would have missed the fact that like someone was going to assassinate him or that they, you know, it took so long to find the guy or, you know, James Earl Ray. So it, it just seems like they, the FBI was very much in on the assassination in some way, although that movie didn't fully make that clear. Um, so yeah, it raised raised those interesting questions that I sort of you know, knew about, but I would never like quite, like the, the questions that came out for me were interesting. Um, so yeah, I recommend that movie. Nice. Did you watch that on Martin Luther King Day? Um, yes, I started on that day but it was two hours, so I didn't finish it till like Wednesday. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> and yeah, it seems like that was my intention. I was feeling pretty crummy on that day and I was ri- hurriedly writing subplans, but I was going to try and go back to the old school philosophy of trying to do something political on MLK day. But sometimes all you can do is watch the Bourne ultimatum, you know?
2: That's right. That's sometimes all your mind will allow you to do.
1: Uh, Well, Bob, we are in the eighth episode of our season, which means our season's coming to an end. And we kind of bit off a little more than we can chew, especially doing, trying to like sort of delve into two different um, deep dives. One of the, um, what's her name book? Wow. Wow. The capitalism book. I can't even believe i got a little COVID brain happening. What is that book called? Having and Being Had, Eulabis. Eulabis. right. Delving into that at the same time as delving into uh, Valerie Kaur and sort of working through the revolutionary love circle, which did you ever post that on Instagram? No, I never did. I never did. (laughs) Yep. That would have been really so good. Sh- it's fine, but you should post it so people can yeah. look at it one last time. And we were going to sort of wrap up today, just kind of. I wanted to just, you know, we worked pretty well through See No Stranger, which is her first book, the book that I think you were reading. Am I wrong with that, Bob? That you were reading that book? Sorry, I was reading that book,
2: um, but I didn't get much beyond those first few early chapters. Okay.
1: Um, yeah, anyhow, um, so we worked through those circles, which was the wonder grieving and fighting. Um, but we're going to kind of just move to the, move through the next two in, I don't know, maybe even just like 10 minutes and just kind of have some impressions about it and then maybe wrap up with a conclusion and sort of just... Yeah, moving away from that, but I guess I wanted to talk a little bit first about opponents and um the idea behind this whole circle is first you look at others, then you look at people who you're opposed to and then you look at yourself. And then through those three um moving from like sort of hatred to love brings you to a better place and Yeah, I don't know. I I don't have a ton to say about opponents, but I do really agree that like the first feeling that she talks about, she's the whole premise under this is called tending the wound with people that you're opposed to. And it is, uh, that is the hardest one for me. Like the other to me was always like working with, it was like just someone you don't know is a friend that you haven't met yet, you know? But like, When you know someone is like opposed to your way of thinking and the greater goals that you're pushing towards, it's really hard to go from rage to reimagining. For me, Um, I don't know. Yeah, what is your initial thoughts on that, Bob?
2: Yeah i I think that's such an important one. Yeah, the for me, I, I actually agree with you that like these other. Like loving your opponent and loving yourself are really important ones. And I think one day we might come back to them on this show. It was like too much, I think, for us in this season to do it all. And, um, and yeah, but I do think it, I do want to come back to those ones and continue reading the book. The loving your opponent one is... Is so important. I see it a lot around me where I see this, um, like people who, uh, the way I'm seeing it these days. I mean, your opponent, first of all, is complicated. There can be lots of opponents. Um, there can be the sort of obvious opponent of like the someone very politically different from you. Um, and And I think that's an important way to think about this, but I'm also seeing it in like the ways that social movements are happening right now. There's a dividing happening where groups that have been working together are having opposition and um, they are like some infighting is happening. And it's, it can be around issues related to race, but also related to maybe gender. Um, It, yeah, probably a host of different issues are doing this right now. And I think the pandemic is making it harder. It's like, you want your comrades to show up for you, but they're not. And then that's just really hard. And it leads to, Groups breaking apart, and it can lead to like camps forming. You know, like the there's like these two camps within an organization. And so that's where I think the book will probably be valuable for that because we, like all the groups that I'm part of, and um, we have a value of not getting bogged into us versus them mentality and like not forming camps. Um, so, but it's so hard in the moment to do that. Or like, I mean, I, I feel forced into like um, sides myself. And I'm always trying to like resist that impulse, you know, like I might like think that one person or one group is more right or more like in the right, um, but I do think it's important to like make the, so it, so this, here's the challenge. is like m- making that point known while also ha- having some space for the other side, you know? Um, and I think that that's, what's hard. Like s- there's a feeling of, um, like if if both sides get to talk, then that means like no one's right. And if no one's right, then the group that started it, like won't address the harm that they've they caused. So yeah, I do think it's extremely hard. Um, but I think Valerie uh, Cora's approach could really be helpful. Although I don't fully know, cause I haven't read that part of the book yet. Um, got too overwhelmed. But yeah, I wonder I'm I'm kind of speaking in abstract terms, Dave. I wonder if what I'm saying even makes sense.
1: Oh, it might. Um, maybe not. It it is in the abstract, and I was kind of going to try and move it to the real or like the tangible a little bit. She suggests a lot. Um, like her main modality for like move movement in this is through the action of listening, and I feel like listening. Is a skill that is, it's almost impossible to teach in some ways, but I also feel like I, I've i seen this with in like a lot of times with people in power, you know, they like hear, they like go to some training and they're like, oh yeah, I need to become a better listener. It's clear to me. Or like I've gotten feedback in the past that I'm not doing a great job of listening. And I know that people in power need to do a better job of listening to the people. And like, so then they'll like go to a meeting and have like, you know, and I've been at some of these meetings where you're like, okay, yeah. Like, so we can either do it this way or this way. What do you think? You know, putting someone on the spot and then, you know, the person's like, ah, yeah, I don't know. And it's like, and I've seen this reaction from these people in power where they're just like, well, come on, they're just not talking. I gave them like that opportunity. I like told them this, that, or the other, and they let them choose. And then they just didn't speak up for themselves. You know, I think like listening needs to come from a space of vulnerability much more often rather than like okay now it's your time to talk you should talk and it like putting someone like forcing there's this I don't know if you've heard the expression like voluntold like rather than volunteer like telling someone that they need to speak up is like one way that a lot of people in power will try and push people into power you know rather than like taking a step backwards and maybe that was too ethereal as well. But I just feel like you need to really examine like, what does it mean to be a listener and what does it mean to like, and I think it comes from vulnerability and really like being like saying like, I don't understand this or like being humble in a lot of ways. So I guess we all need to do that a little bit and take a second and think about because if we're ever going to move out of a, a position of like misunderstanding and rage and anger and hostility, we need to move towards understanding. And that only comes with listening, right? Yeah, it really does. Yeah, I
2: think that is crucial and um, that listening it becomes a buzzword too often and that we don't know how to do it. And I think, yeah, you're right. I, you know, like I do think it can be learned and can be taught, but I just don't know that we have done that. And I've like rarely seen any lessons around that. So I think you're absolutely right there. Um, yeah. And I think listening is, is not just yeah in the moment. I think you're right. It like what happens before the listening and after the listening are equally important. So like, like what you're talking about is the conditions of allowing a person to talk. So like you're, I think you're talking about like some meeting and then like all of a sudden, like the person's supposed to talk and, and be listened to. And that's, those are like terrible conditions for sharing. And then therefore terrible conditions for listening So like the conditions need to be there where we think about like, okay, how can we bring people together and present in an environment where people will like really want to share. And when they share that the other people will really listen. If we think about that instead of like, that's never how meetings come together. Meetings are always like, okay, what are the agenda? What's the agenda? Let's get the agenda. What do we need to like get on here? Which goes first? Like, so, Never is like the question, how can we get people to come and and present the conditions where people will feel brave enough to share? And then how can we also present the conditions where people will actually listen? Um, That's complicated, but I think that would totally change meetings and change like gatherings. So that's like the before. And then like when the sharing happens, the listening, I think two things need to happen. One, like the listener needs to sort of show that they've listened, you know, if like, I'm not making eye contact or if I respond or cut people off, but more just like, even like really digging in and like listening and then kind of trying to show that to the other person that can deepen the sharing. But I think beyond that, like whatever's shared, there has to be like some follow through and things get lost so often. And There just has to be that commitment to the follow through of what, what, what was shared if the listening will happen again. So that's, that's hard too. Um, but I think if we were to do all that, that would, that would really change things. And I think that would allow for the breaking down of like us versus
1: them mentality. Well, let's also delve a little bit into this last circle, Bob the last little pieces working on ourselves and this one I didn't do any, like it didn't do that much research on. I've mostly just like looked at it and thought about it, but I haven't like delved into what exactly she means, but it's the three circles are you start by breathing, then you push and then you transition. And it's interesting because the inner circle of like where we start You know, for opponents, it's with rage, with um, others, like people we don't know, it starts with wonder, um, and then um, with ourselves, it starts with breathing, which is kind of an interesting one for me. Um, To me, that feels like a lot more meditative and a lot more introspective, right, and then My guess is that she's making the analogy that like we're always breathing, but like, are we paying attention to our breath? How often are we paying attention to ourself? Um, I don't know if that's what she means, but that's where my mind goes that we need to start actually paying attention to who we are in this world and what we're trying to do. Like if, you know, like if we take notice of the little thing like breathing, then we can take notice of what we do on a daily basis, which allows us to push to new things and allows us to transition in the end to be the person that we want to be. Um, I like my initial thoughts are that I like that, but I'm also like, I'm a little bit opposed to the idea that we all need to transition into something new. Do you know what I mean? Like, it that presupposes that who we are is bad. Um, so I kind of struggle with that a little bit. But I think, you know, as Octavia Butler would say, God is change. Like, we will always be changing. So maybe we need to embrace that change um, as opposed to, you know, because... We will be totally different every day, no matter what we do. Um, There will be pieces of us that will be changing every day. So I don't know. Maybe it's not quite so drastic as the fact that we all need to change no matter what, but that we need to embrace the fact that we are dynamic beings in this world. Yeah, I like that.
2: I like the Octavia Butler. I think there's probably some connections there too. Yeah. Dave, have you ever heard of the concept of grind culture?
1: Uh, no, I'm hoping it has to do with espressos. Oh no, no, (laughs) it's, I wish it was as delicious as, is
2: that No, it's, um, grind culture is the like ideas and practices of you always need to be doing stuff and like you need to like really maximize your day and make your, make your to-do list and get everything done. Um, and then there's pressures to like do more and take on more. Um, and if you can just like take it all on, you will rise up the, the ladder, get that job. Um, but it's about making it happen and you can do it, make it happen. You can take it on. And, um, this is your opportunity but it's also like so connected with capitalism of like, there's always something to do and you can do more, let's do this people. Let's like take this on. Um, Let's make the deadline. Um, Let's get it done. So that's, that's all grind culture. And I think we're, I personally think we're very awash in that in our culture. I feel that I feel like there's just so much to do all the time. And, Mm -hmm. and the, the antidote is the, this is the work of Tricia Hersey and she's the founder of the nap ministry. Have you heard of the nap ministry? Nope. What is that one? Um, I hope it has to do with espressos. It has to do after your coffee high. Um, it is like the idea that rest is resistance and that social movements need to integrate the practice of rest. And so that's, that's, the connection with the breathing part for me of Valerie Kors, like the, before we can push, which is going to take some, maybe like grinding. Um, we really have to rest and we have to like, and then we can push for a while and then we're, we're going to have to come back to breathing and resting. Um, and this is, it's powerful work because grind culture partially comes from, the plantation system and grinding enslaved people, you know, work, work, work. And so American grind culture has some of its roots. There a lot of really important roots. So rest is resistance to enslaved people, slow down strikes, slow down work. Um, and, and yet social movements have forgotten about that. So it's powerful work. I, I'll, I'll link people to the nap ministry, but yeah, there's actually like a lot of power within resting, Um, not just for the self, which is, you know, really important for the self, but also for our social movements. Right.
1: Hmm. Love it, Bob. Good stuff, Dave. I like those, those references. I like where we went today. Um, Yeah. Any final thoughts on our work and the work of Valerie?
2: Um, No, just that, yeah, it's like not... Like we did it quickly here at the end, but I I do intend to like, it's more of like a shelving till, till some time later that we can tackle these chapters in more depth. Um, And just excited for the next season too. Uh, I don't know if we should introduce that yet, but we've got some
1: some great ideas. Keep it close to the heart, Bob. I'm playing this one close.
2: Yeah. Well, people just have to see what's coming down the turnpike.
1: Yeah. See what's coming out of Montana these days. Come and in, come in stop uh, on I-25, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, it seems like perfect timing for us to go to the final segment. Typically, we do, we've been doing Stoneface in season eight or whatever season we're on. But I think with a Ryan Tannehill pass right here, we're going to do some predictions with the NFL playoffs. Um, and as Tennessee ties up the game in the third quarter with a, with a deep pass. Um, <laughs> yeah. We are just starting. I, what is this weekend called the divisional AFC, AFC NFC divisional playoffs. So yeah. I think so. Yeah. A total of eight teams left and all teams are either tied at 16, 16 or zero, zero right now. Yeah. Um, pure, even, even as it gets. Even as it gets, I want to know, I'm going to go quick through it, Bob, but I want to hear your predictions of winners. And then I'm just going to do my quick brackets real quick, if that's okay for you, Bob. Yeah, you can do your brackets while I'll tell you
2: who I got for this divisional round. Um,
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, go ahead, Bob. You want to go first? I was going to go first. Oh, yeah. No, you go first, Dave. Okay. Um, I have... Tennessee beating Cincinnati. I got Kansas City beating um, the Bills. And they'll go on to play each other. And I got Kansas City over Tennessee, making it to the Super Bowl. On the other side, I got Green Bay over the 49ers. I got the Rams over Tom Brady. And then I got Green Bay over the Rams. And I got Kansas City beating Aaron Rodgers and Green Bay over there. Nice. Nice. It's good
2: stuff, Dave. Okay. Um, so I got the Titans over the Bengals, and then I got good. the Chiefs Chiefs over the Titans. I'm right, right there with you. I guess our AFC is going to be exactly the same because I got Chiefs over the Titans. Our yep. NFC is different. It's um, going to be exactly different because I'm going to take the Niners over the Packers because um, uh, earlier this week, I... I walked into uh, um, like uh, just a little corner store and I asked the clerk how he was doing. He's like, oh, great. Our team won yesterday. And I, I realized he was talking about the Niners. So Dave, I'm in Niners country. So I got I to gotta <laughs> go to Niners. Um, Niners country. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to take the bucks over the Rams because I... You're not ready to be done with Tom Brady yet, are you, bub? I mean, I'm not really, but, you know, fuck it, Dave. You're right. I'm done with him. Let's go (laughs) Rams. It it just sets up a nice Golden State final, you know, San Fran versus versus LA. The Starhawk finals. The Starhawk finals. I'll take that. (laughs) Um, And I'll stick with my Niners. (laughs) Just for that store clerk, Dave, he was the sweetest guy. He he really was a sweetie. What a clerk. Yeah. Um, but in that, in the, the Super Bowl, which I guess is a rematch of a few years ago, I'm going to take the chiefs over the Niners. So I'm right there with the chiefs because I, uh, in our new year's Eve show, I, I took those chiefs a few weeks back and I, I got to stay true to that prediction.
1: Oh, there you go. Yep. Nice, Bob. Um, oh, that reminds me, uh, if you, I mean, almost everyone who listens, but, um, has probably seen it somewhere, but my uh, my wife—that's funny. My partner Julie Patchulik is teaching some a class series. She's going to be teaching. Um, she's. It's mostly designed for teens and tweens, but it's also geared towards people who love teens and tweens. And she's doing a series. It's called Find Your Flow, um, and it's all about like different aspects of the divine feminine. There's a class on body image, nutrition, um, you know, which she's reading the body is not an apology for that one. Um, and yeah, she, we've been watching DVDs, um, about goddess culture and the, it's been pretty cool cause she's teaching a class on goddess and, um, yeah, there's a few other classes. Do you want to plug yourself, Julie, on the last, last things of the podcast? She's walking down because she heard me plugging it. Well, let's yeah. get in here. Sure. Get in sure. here. Get
3: on here. Thanks, Dave. Um, classes are Sundays. You can access it on Zoom. Maybe you can put an Eventbrite link in, in the show notes to well, direct Talk to people. the show notes crew. Um, Dave was right. He said... First class is on body image and nutrition. That's actually going to be tomorrow on January 23rd. And then the next class is about reproductive health and menstruation and um, various, you know, I'm going to be talking about herbs and tips and tricks from uh, from an advanced menstruator, as I like to identify, <laughs> uh, goddess mythology <laughs> and so sacred feminine is a class. And then the final one is about sexual health. And we'll be talking about like consent and masturbation and pornography and getting into some really juicy topics nice yeah come join me sundays 11 excuse me 10 to noon um, mountain mountain time but yeah info and show notes
1: yeah that's
3: good and for the Montana uh,
1: users mountain time
2: it's uh primarily focused for teens and tweens but anyone is welcome is that true
3: yeah exactly. originally i I was thinking about teens and tweens, and then I realized that the grown ups and teens and tweens are also looking for some guidance and how to support their their kid or their mentee or their loved one. Um, so I wanted to include them in this class series and and they could potentially add their experience and and spread the word and support their teen in that way with this knowledge.
2: That's great, so audience. Join us or join Julie and spread the word in your communities.
1: Spread those Instagram links. <laughs> um, all right, Bob, do you want to hit the coordinates and we'll we'll get out of here? Yep. Uh, email us at DavePeachTree
2: at gmail.com. Instagram, where hopefully I'll show an image at thriving underscore in underscore dystopia. And then Twitter is at BMaze19. And we have a website thrivingindystopia.com.
1: Love it, Bob. All right. Well, people, we'll see you out there on the gridiron or in your divine feminine classes. Either way. (laughs) Nice contrast. (laughs) All right. Love you, Bob.
2: Love you, Dave. Great season. Yep. Great season.
3: What's up, Driving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Cheyetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. The outro song to season 8 is Captain Jack by Kimoru Crew. Thanks for listening.
0: Aujourd'hui encore on chante le refrain du pirate acadien Allez des sauvages par Un jour voyant trop là ceux qui croyaient un bateau On le prie à bord et enfile un pirate, commençons la légende de Jack. Captain Jack, Captain Jack, est arrivé de loin, aujourd'hui encore on chante le refrain du pirate acadien.